lot of people know that you know the horror stories of M and V, and it's a very difficult, nuanced subject. It is. It is. Uh, and, uh, you know, the way I look at it, it, there's a couple of things, you know, we get involved early on sometimes in performance contracts, helping ESCOs set up, uh, helping them prepare uh, projects, you know, project development kind of things. But when it's all over, and maybe not on the same project, usually not, but when we get a call from someone, especially in the public sector, Things have to go really, really, really south and sideways for a public sector uh, client to call us and say, hey, I have a problem. Because by and large in the public sector, unlike the private sector, usually if it's performing even close to expectations, it's good enough. And nobody wants to raise the flag up and say, oh, this thing that we had in the newspaper is a, is a, you know, a great project, et cetera, isn't doing what it said. It has to be bad. So there are, a, you know, a number of horror stories that are related to specifics of M&B and related to all of the failures on the way through the project to get to M&B that have caused some, pro some serious, you know, on the surface, People say it really couldn't be that bad. Oh, yes, it really could be that bad. There are some that are just monumental. Um, but maybe as we go through the podcast, some will uh, come up as prime examples of what not to do. And, and when you say prime examples of what not to do or monumental issues, MNV is the process that identifies these issues or is the issue? A uh, combination. So okay. we've seen people... Um, construct their own M and B methodologies that are not in compliance with anything uh, remote related, related to the IPMBP or have any statistical validity whatsoever and author that as an authentic or approved method to do M and V when, I mean, it's uh, elementary school mathematics that have no relevance to the actual performance of the project. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess with that, kind of leading into it, we'll start our podcast. Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. So as you heard in today's podcast, we will be discussing the measurement and verification process. And I guess a great starting point for this episode is kind of just outlining what what is M&V? And this is a very broad brush question. But hopefully, Nick or Mark, when you guys will be able to give us a a good broad brush answer. Sure, I'll jump in here. Yeah, yeah. What is M and V, and why do we M and V? Great questions. A lot of M and V pros probably ask themselves why M and V every day they're working on some complex project. But <laughs> basically, it's the process of quantifying energy savings that have been achieved through the implementation of an energy conservation measure. They call them different things, facility improvement measures, projects that are designed to uh, lower energy consumption or demand. And the M&V is a, an extension of everything else that has preceded it in the project life cycle and looks to verify what savings have been achieved or more importantly, or more precisely perhaps, what energy use has been avoided through the implementation of these conservation measures. And it's different than, let's say, commissioning in that the measurement and verification extends over the actual operating term of the equipment, you right. know, meaning you know, what it's doing in real life every day and uh, then a lot of nuanced levels below that. And, and I would add on to that, Nick, and from, from our experience in subject matter expert legal support, we never talk about savings. We always talk about avoidance. And because in the customer's mind, and actually this has been debated regularly in, uh, in cases that we've been involved with, inferentially savings gives the customer the, the mindset that their bills will go down. So we talk about avoidance all the time. And one of the reasons that M&B is so difficult is because we're measuring what never happened. Right, it's invisible. It's not necessarily going to be a enormous reduction in a utility bill, 
It's the difference between reality, what is now, and a forecasted or predicted reality that would have happened in the absence of the facility improvement measures or the energy conservation measures. And it's the process of M&V that basically calculates the difference between those two, the reality with the facility improvement measures or ECMs in place and the predicted reality of what would have happened in their absence. Good distinction between savings and avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And I can imagine there's plenty of cases where you, you do need to do avoidance because facilities may not be run the way they need to be bringing in enough outside air, et cetera. So when you do do a project, you need, you're, you're basing it off their baseline per se, right? And that baseline that they think they have is necessarily not reality because they're not running the facility correct. I, I can imagine that's kind of a point of contention sometimes in the MMV process. Like why you're, you're telling us we're supposed to be saving, there's supposed to be savings when in reality, maybe their bill's higher, but they're avoiding the BTUs that they should have been consuming before, if that makes sense. Oh, completely make makes sense. Yeah. And okay. that's a big part of the, like the whole concept of baseline adjustments, but yep. Yeah. And then the only thing I would say, you know, guys that it seems that, uh, I don't know, cost avoidance can be a tricky term, I guess, for some people to understand when they're used to talking about savings. I, I think a lot of people do understand the concept of savings. I mean, it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, specific to this industry, uh, but yeah, no, it can be, uh, the, the terminology is a huge part of it too, as you get down into how you define what this is. It is uh, interesting though, that, you know, the M&B process, Clayton, you talked about adjusted baselines and I related the story in another podcast that we were with a, a ESCO that wanted to develop a project at a big office building yeah. and uh, took us in and uh, they were on a district steam heating plant. And so steam was expensive and uh, we started going through the mechanical rooms and looking at the outside air intakes and they were not just, the dampers weren't just blocked off. They were walled off, insulated and closed up, never to be opened again. So that building basically had 0% outside right. air. And I said, okay, we can do this, but it will have an adjusted baseline yep. and the actual operating costs will go up. And that was the first and only time we were on the site when we told them the cost would go up, the operating cost would go up. That's all. We're done. They didn't want to hear anything more. No. Well, ventilation, I mean, that's that's a huge part. I mean, you're talking yep, about taking their yep. baseline way up and then saying, then yep. we're going to save you some off of that. Yep. So I can understand. And I've had the same experiences in some, you know, if they're, you know, schools and, and you know, a decade or so ago, and uh, depending on what geography you're in, but there were a lot of ventilation issues in public schools and they recognized that and they, they, you know, they couldn't leave them boarded up forever. So, and they realized you know, a lot of these places too, it wasn't because it was just expensive, but it was that their equipment wasn't in, in the whole control system, wasn't capable of even managing bringing in outside air. So they realized they had to do something long-term, but I agree. There's been those cases too, where they say, okay, thanks. We're done here. We're not interested. I think we'll, we'll stay with our low cost, but poorly ventilated and really bad indoor air quality buildings. No one's died yeah. yet. So so when I think of M&V, like the first thing that comes to mind really is this is part of a ESPC project, right? And energy savings performance contract. But it, is that the only correlation M&V and ESPC or does M&V occur on, on all different types of projects? Oh, uh, that's a great question, Clayton. So we've done a bunch of work in industrial facilities and in gen- general in development of projects for industrial facilities, there is a request for capital improvement, you know, funding, depending right. on how big it is, you know, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, which is generally accompanied by an engineering study that shows the predicted cost avoidance or savings for the project, maintenance savings, et cetera, et cetera. And th- that documentation is used, is used to make that 
capital expenditure request. So typically when a project's done, the plant manager or finance manager will pull out the utility bills and say, well, our bills went down, but did we really save? What's it attributed to? And we get called in to do some M&B or there are numerous examples. You know, we did a bunch of work with Toyota, Brad Reed and Bruce Bremer were at Toyota and those guys were rigorous in their M&V of their energy projects because they wanted to continue to do more work and nothing builds credibility like being able to say, here's how much we have saved or avoided based on past projects. And, and in the context of doing the M&V work, uh, they were those guys and, and others, you know, Joe Gisling at Ford uh, were very good practitioners of honest M&V, what worked, what didn't work, sharing best practices. Hey, this is what we expected. We made it or we didn't make it. Here's why. And you find that quite a bit in, in industrial facilities. But like in that instance, you're brought in potentially post-project. So uh, yeah, post-project or sometimes yeah. we did the project development. Sometimes there right, right, right. us to do the post-project. I mean, it really doesn't matter. But all I'm saying is that those are not performance contracts at all. Not even, not ESPCs. They're just plain projects that in, in industry and in business, good fiscal management is you want to know what the return is in our, on our investment. And mm -hmm. if it's a good return, then we want to do more of it. If it's not a good return, well, maybe we do less of it. VS Energy sometimes get, gets brought into um, industrial facilities to come and do M&V on projects they've put in place or that VS Energy has helped implement well, so they can identify. Or third party, other parties' projects oh, yeah, that's as true. well. Yeah. Or third party, so we can identify the savings. And I was curious because... Like why, why do you do, why do they want M&V as opposed to just like for an industrial facility for me, their, their utility bill is pretty, I don't want to say straightforward, but it, it, depending on the process is pretty consistent, right? So why, why do they not just look at the utility bill instead of bringing in M&V to identify avoidance? Well, typically when industrial facilities undertake a project, there are more parameters involved than only reducing energy costs. For instance, we've done many, many environmental stabilization processes where an industrial facility is either too warm, too cold, too humid, uh, not humid enough, etc. So there's a significant amount of baseline adjustment that goes into that. Okay, we can make your plant cool, but it will take another thousand tons of uh, air conditioning to provide that cooling. Um, you know, a project that we were on a few right. years ago had 1,700 tons of DX cooling on the roof. Of that, about two-thirds of it was failed. Uh, mm -hmm. And what was there was extremely low efficiency machines 15 years old, condensers are plugged, just awful. So when we say, well, we need to add 2,500 tons of cooling to make this happen and some central air handlers, there's a lot of baseline adjustment work that goes into that to basically show here's what would have happened if you had run your 1,700 tons of DX, assuming they could run at mm -hmm. full load, and here's what the environmental conditions would have been in the plant but now you're 74 degrees and 45% RH and here's what the cost is. And that baseline adjustment has to be identified. Um, and then they, meaning that we don't do the calculation of here's the efficiency improvement or throughput perf performance improvement of the facility. But what you find is that when you stabilize the environmental conditions in a manufacturing facility, the, the, processes are generally favorably impacted and, right. and they look for that as a, as a big part of the number. Yeah. And as far as seeing it in the, in the bill, you know, for, for so many facilities, and it really depends on the scope and the scale of the energy project you're doing, mm -hmm. but it can be very difficult to discern, you know, even if you see the savings in the bill and it's evident, but you know, for an industrial place, they're going to have change in production. 
we got to change in a lot of things that aren't that don't have anything to do with the project, let alone weather. So, mm -hmm. right. I think, you know, Mark's point of M and V is a tool. I mean, it's so true. And I've seen that too, where the, the, the best customers that are interested in M and V and really the value that it can provide, not only for that project, but also for other endeavors they want to do in their facilities. They're the ones closest to, you know, the capital, right. You know, they, they, they pay the bills, and I, and I find in just my experience, but when you get into, you know, state government, federal government, and people are more connected or disconnected from the actual utility bills and the costs and really maybe don't have the responsibility for it, then the M and V is maybe not so valued at times. Right. Doesn't mean it shouldn't, it should be, or shouldn't be, but. Mm -hmm. And, and what we find is, you know, with the industrial customers, they're very interested. I mean, they like to be um, rigorous and complete in their uh, calculations and their forecasts. And, you know, they present complex problems. And when you explain, here's how we can do a regression analysis and uh, look at how the units of production have impacted the energy consumption and the chiller run times and chiller loads, they're interested and they like it. So it's important that you have a good grasp on the mathematics and the statistics that go into that. Yeah. So I guess the bottom line is you don't necessarily need a, a state sponsored or federal sponsored, you know, energy savings performance contract, or even a guaranteed savings right. project, which can occur privately as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mark, you've probably worked on projects where, you know, your client wants measurement and verification, but doesn't want a three year, five year guarantee or anything that the savings will occur. Correct. And, and when like, we're talking, I know just to, to clarify, like at some point we're looking at avoidance in like energy, right? BTUs, KWH, whatever. But at some point you need to quantify that so they can verify the savings are achieving some sort of uh, payback that they want. Right. Correct. Yeah. Well, primarily achieving the savings that, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously if you're looking for other projects you want to, or looking back on your project and you thought it would have, you know, X internal rate of return. And when you're all mm -hmm. done, it, it didn't or had more than that, then that factors into your, future planning. Right, right, right. Okay. So, and maybe this is another, it's a tough question to ask, I guess, because it obviously it varies, but like when does maybe generally the M and V process begin? Like when we talk about commissioning in our commissioning series, you know, a lot of people think commissioning is at the end of the project, but this is a, a, a project wide endeavor for commissioning, right? What about the M and V process? Is that the same? Pretty much same exact answer from my perspective that okay. a, a lot of people being, I think, you know, they're misinformed about M&V and they do think, you know, it's it's the end of the annual performance period. We better start doing our M&V on this right. project. And there's, I mean, it just, it doesn't even, doesn't make a lot of sense on, on so many levels. So getting involved early with measurement and verification, and it is very similar to commissioning where you need to put a plan in place expectations you know that's one of the big things about m and v and the whether you call it an industry standardization but a, a i guess a acknowledgement that measurement and verification does have a place in the project can i interject yeah yeah and and nick you're exactly right and what we see is that well design projects, uh, you know, by reputable companies, by people that have been doing this for a while, engage the M&B team early on simply for the reason that, hey, we want to collect data from day one, basically, through the installation period uh, and design our M&B so that as much as possible, we can automate that and have the control system provide the data logging, trending, et cetera, that you can engage to get data. And the M&V for each facility improvement measure or energy conservation measure is designed at the same time as that measure is designed so that 
we know, okay, for the chiller, we need chill water in and out. We need basically a mechanism to measure chill water flow. We need, you know, all the chiller amps, if we can get it right out of the chiller, you know, using mm-hmm. uh, integration. But all those things are are talked about and designed in at the onset, not as an afterthought, because to go back and forensically reconstruct what we think might have happened during that year is a, that's a wish and a hope. Good luck with that. No, Mark, those are, that's a great point. And so, yeah, there's pretty much the two major reasons to get involved early is the one being, you know, there typically is baseline information that needs to be gathered and collected. But two, you know, the big benefit of defining how these things will be measured and verified is that then then that is the plan for when you get into that. To, to come into a project and, and M&V it without any discussions about it's going to be M&V'd, you know, can lead to a lot of problems as far as just being objective about what you're seeing out there. And mm-hmm. if the plan is laid out in advance, here's the data we're collecting. Here's how we're going to manipulate that data, and here's how we're going to look at it. Then that expectation is set going in, and there's not a lot of debate about well, why did you, why did you do it that way, and it would have been better to do this and use this baseline period. All that's very well defined in a good M and V plan up front. So, like, I'm just trying to again paint a picture for myself and the listeners if they don't know. Like, as part of the M and V process, is are you spending time on site before a project starts getting baseline data or is this generally more of a, a, a calculated value if you want to call it that uh, boots on the ground too when's when's yeah. the day there yeah uh, okay you know whether it's through you know remote instrumentation but or field measurements i mean all that goes into a lot of the same things you would see with commissioning mm-hmm. as far as being out there and that presence at the site very important and, you know, following on to that, what do we want for our baseline documentation? There should be, and usually there is, what's called an IGA, investment grade audit, or level three, ASHRAE level three audit, which mm-hmm. should be very, very comprehensive in terms of addressing the variables that affect each facility improvement measure, how the weather impacts the building operation, really everything that sets the stage for the baseline of comparison for the M&B process. That makes sense. And then I don't know if this is a good time or not. And I actually didn't even put this in our outline. Shame on me. Um, I know I want to talk about just like a general, you know, I don't want if you want to call it step-by-step M&B process to just to get a feel for everything. But when we discuss the like different IPMVP options? When we discuss them with the uh, with, uh, end user internally or? Uh, uh, to the listeners, like what, what it is. Because that, obviously that dictates the M&V process depending on it does. what option it is, right? So I don't know if it's worth outlining that to make that clear and under, understood. And then just diving into like, let's talk about like a, a standard if you want to call it that, I know it all varies. M and V job, how that typically goes. If Nick could explain that, sure. Where do you want to start with? Let's the- start. Yeah, let's start with IPMVP. Just to make that clear, because like I said, I think that that is that drives the M and V process, right? Uh, yeah, largely. I mean, the the IPMVP, the International Performance Measurement and Verification Protocol. You know, it's the most widely accepted and adopted standard out there. And defines, you know, has a lot in, in place and for guidelines on how to M and V different types of projects, and it gets into the the mathematics of statistics and sampling is a big part of M and V as mm-hmm. well. Let's see, tops of the trees. Basically, there's four defined M and V options, if you will. Uh, there's option A, option B, C, and D. A being the most common and you are under an option a you would be measuring at least one of the variables involved in that system to then calculate energy consumption and let's say that would be like a motor replacement and you're going to a high efficiency motor 
well, let's think of it as a constant speed motor, you could go in there and measure the KW draw on this motor. Mm -hmm. And then let's see, you've done some other studies or agreed to with the customer, you know, here's how many hours it operates. Right. Year. So your total KWH is partly calculated too, right? Cause you're not right. measuring the hour. So yep. you're measuring one variable option B is you, you have a, a measurement boundary around that system and you are essentially measuring all the energy consumption with that particular system. Okay. So with the motor and, you know, example, that would be like sticking on a watt meter or, you know, a power meter that would continuously capture every KWH that that motor is consuming. Right. Okay. Option C gets into your utility bill analysis, which is less common, but still, you know, quite appropriate in some circumstances, depending on really the ratio of your savings to the ratio of the total energy consumption of that building. If you're trying to see a very, you know, a very small reduction uh, as a percent of their total utility usage, it can be very difficult to do doing bill analysis. But again, if you're impacting a lot of, a lot of a building or their energy systems, then option C can be a, a very good choice. Mm -hmm. and then option D is more in the uh, energy simulation uh, that's what you're using to verify the savings quite a bit more involved with software. But again, measurements do come into play. That is, I would say, far less common. It is used, but I think mostly, Mark, maybe in new construction M&V. New construction. Don't have a lot of familiarity with, but I think that's its main application. But with all that said, there still is in the industry, in my experience, a lot of misidentification of which M&V method is actually being applied. Right. And surprisingly, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it does matter, but what ultimately matters in my opinion is that the customer understands as well how these things are being measured and verified. And it's not just while well, we're using option C, go read a technical manual to see how right. that is. Right. Right. But that's, that's the tops of the trees of, I guess, MNV standards. No, and I appreciate it. So so I, I'll just expand on that a little bit. I mean, option A, great option, but it's typically assigned to relatively straightforward retrofits, as Nick indicated, a motor right. replacement, light repla yep. lighting replacement, perfect mm -hmm. option A. Option B, we see it, uh, oh, I'm replacing my hot water boilers, my traditional 85% uh, or 82% uh, boilers with new high efficiency boilers or chiller replacement, those kind of things. What what we have found to be problematic with options A and B is when you take them and let's say we have 25 facility improvement measures and you add those up and the methodology doesn't include a mechanism to remove the interaction. Let's just say we, we do a chiller replacement we're going to do supplier reset and VAV conversion of a, all the multi-zones in the building and all a number of interactive facility improvement measures. It leads to an error in the overlap in efficiency gains between a number, you know, a large number of option A and B measures. So the IPMB, IPMBP recommends that anytime you have total avoidance greater than 10% of the total utility consumption, you use option C, which tends to eliminate or take out the overlap between measures. Now, right. the, the downside of it is you can't claim all of, those, all of that avoidance for financing op opportunities. So, you know, there's arguments both ways, but certainly not accounting for that interaction between facility improvement measures leads to an overstatement of projected savings. And hand in hand with that, or at least what I thought of Mark, when you were saying that was that the, uh, you know, as an M and V professional or as a firm engaging in M and V and understanding with your client, you know, you, you can't credit your project savings that weren't due to really your impact. Right. And it goes the other ways too. You shouldn't be penalized for things that are necessarily out of your control. So with the option C method, yeah, it does require a little bit, 
I guess, more of a robust examination about exactly how how are adjustments being done and will savings be credited that are only due to the implementation of the projects. Correct. I think that make makes sense. I mean, at least for me too and the listeners. It, it's funny, you know, my my experience with IPMVP options was taking the CEM exam. They they asked what is option A, B, or C. And that's it. <laughs> so I had to know it once and then moved on with life. <laughs> so it, it, it's good to outline though, because I think it's stuff that it's it's very important to know, especially obviously in the MV world, that the lines probably, like Nick said, get blurred a little bit, and I don't know, it's not fully understood what when the best time to implement each option is. So then for Nick, say I'm a school district and I'm doing an ESPC project and I'm, I'm changing to LED lights and I'm, I'm upgrading my boilers and um, you know I'm putting VFDs on my pumps what what have you and this project is projected to have a you know ROI in i don't know how many years when like how how do you go about the M&V process for a situation like that then who like are you reached out to by school the ESPC um you know, yeah, I wish there was a simple answer, but you know, I think back to my <laughs> experience just about it depends on how you work, like in your team is structured. A lot of times you have a separate development team that will be going in and developing a project. Mm-hmm. Measurement and verification folks may be brought in when you're past a certain level, like, hey, we've nailed down, we think we're gonna go with these 12 projects, mm-hmm. getting close to whatever, coming to uh terms with the customer. Right. Uh, well, it should be well before you know, construction and pricing actually. Right, right. Okay. There's so much more involved with, I mean, we haven't even talked about savings risk and if there's anybody better qualified to determine the, the risk of the savings and how much you guarantee per se, or would uh, commit to the customer, you know, it's the M and V pro that's, that's kind of their wheelhouse as far as measurement uncertainty and their experience with other projects. But, I guess the bottom line would be, you know, so much of it is focused on the baseline, but a lot of my work is getting involved, frankly, way too late. And the people that hire me, they, they recognize it too. It's just okay. a question of how things have been built and how they mm-hmm. work. And, but you're, you're right. There is uh, so much information that needs to be gathered up front. And a lot of that can be done through the regular development, you know, process where energy engineers are collecting site data, they're doing their calculations to even estimate savings. So you can see that measurement and verification does dovetail with that process. And the, the sooner they get on board together, the smoother that goes. No, if, you, if you're getting involved after the project is done, it's usually because somebody's not happy. Right. And at that point, uh, you're trying to do damage control, but it's imperative that, especially when we get involved in legal support, that, hey, the numbers are what the numbers are. The facts are what the facts are. And uh, good, bad, or ugly, you know, you apply the methodologies that are most appropriate and what shakes out is what shakes out. Well, and I would say this too, you know, it's not only you're getting involved late for one reason or another, but there there can be, and, it's, and it can be similar to the commissioning kind of perception, if you will, in some circles that you, know, you have a lot of great people that are involved in developing these projects, right? And a lot of thought is put into it, some heavy engineering and technical work. There is the expectation, of course, it's going to work and it's going to save money. So, you know, measurement and verification can be thought of a uh, more of a contractual compliance check the box type of thing. We're just here to report on the savings that we know we're going to achieve because we're we're good at what we do. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times that does happen, but it's it's much more involved than that. And there are plenty of cases where, yeah, the measurement and verification has revealed problems that. We're, we're baked into the project from the start and there's really no way to recover from other times. There's plenty of ways to recover from them. 
but the time to recover is not at the end of the year <laughs> when you start looking at trend data and saying, hey, all your stuff's been operating 24-7 <laughs> since January. Then you get into problems. Well, well, why didn't you let us know? And whose responsibility is that? But the bottom line is the savings didn't happen. Right. You know, then you got to figure out, well, who's really liable for them. But yep. what everybody should be concerned about is that something was missed and this project did not achieve what it was supposed to achieve. It, it seems like you could you could go in and it's probably obvious for you guys, but be like the really good guy, the great person with great news. Everybody's happy. You know, we're cheering, clapping hands, shaking hands, moving on. And then you could be the bad guy that's like, oh, some, something's not right. And you're the one identifying that problem. And you, I assume you're the one that has to bring that problem forward then if you start seeing anomalies in the data that says we're not achieving the proposed avoidance, right? Oh, quite often. And it's yeah. kind of a, you know, a sad joke sometimes within the M&V circles. You know, if you put together a great report that says, yeah, we made our savings and got a little bit extra, sometimes the feeling internally is, well, yeah, of course we did. Yeah. That's what we planned on. Yeah, that was so, the plan, duh. And you come to them and you say, hey, you know, your construction is even, and that's another part of M&V. There's a lot of times installation savings are a big part of a project's financial uh, financial picture. So when you have a project that's going on for 12 or 18 months, mm-hmm. you might be capturing savings along the way. So, and those are, those are typically guaranteed as well in a performance contract. So to uh, come to somebody early on in a project saying, there's no way you're going to make your construction savings because well, X, Y, Z, maybe the project manager didn't understand the connection between his physical work out there and savings that were planned to happen. And when he restructured the order of his buildings that he was doing, maybe they had a bigger impact on that part of the cash flow than he realized. Mm-hmm. It's quite an involved process, Clayton. Oh, it's, it, it does. I mean, it's, it's obviously taking one hour's worth of podcasting does not do it justice. <laughs> so I'm just trying to get a, you know, a, a blanket kind of just a feeling for what the M&V process is like. And I, th- I think we're on a good track to that. Um, well, and I'm going to go back. I mean, everything goes back to how solid the construction of the foundation is. Okay. How did we measure the baseline? Was it with good, reliable right. instrumentation? Mm-hmm. But, you know, in chilled water, a two degree error in measurement makes a considerable difference. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so we want to make sure that there's accurate instrumentation. It's calibrated. Um, we've seen, you know, error stacking that gets compounded when we're measuring temperature, relative humidity, pressures, et cetera. And those variables all go into a number of engineering calculations. And we, we can't get the numbers to match up. And it's due to measurement error. So set the stage for success with high quality calibrated instruments before we even start the M&B process in terms of calculation. And then it, it just adds credibility to everything that you do. Well, we know that these numbers are right and then at least we can move forward with real data, not what we think might be happening. True. So, and then we brought up in, uh, I think it was a commissioning podcast again, we, we talked about doing a sensitivity analysis on some data. Maybe it was our energy podcast. I'm sorry if I, I don't have it right, but is the M&V outfit doing that sensitivity analysis or is the energy engineers doing that sensitivity analysis and the M&V outfit is just, is gathering the data based on the current state of the world, whatever, you know, weather, production, everything like that. Yeah. So typically if you do sensitivity analysis, typically it's pre-project implementation to give the customer an idea, a client an idea as to what the potential impact will be based on a -hmm. a shift in significant variables. So after the fact, the M&V team is basically, here's the facts. They're in those variables. Yeah. Whatever whatever you could try to project, they're in that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then, Again, I feel like these are tough questions to ask for you guys because I I understand it. It it just it's very situational, but like 
maybe Nick talk about like the extent of data acquisition in the MV process. Like, are you using like the BAS system for some of this information or are you getting your own data? If you are, you know, are you putting data loggers out, logging at five minute time intervals? Like what are you doing to get your data for the M and B process? Well, it's very situational. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it, but it is. And And, and, I get that. Yeah. Uh, so what was your first question? So yeah, uh, any sources of information? I mean, they can be as rough as as printed hard copies of you know a customer's internal logging of their plant energy consumption. Okay, that may be all they have, and mm-hmm. they've gone through that work of consolidating all their utility bills, whatnot. Mm-hmm. You go back to all you have is utility bills. There's still plenty of sites out there that don't have you know, an automation system that you can, that has trending ability. So mm-hmm. in that case, if you wanted to know what was happening when you're not looking, you know, you're looking at putting in data loggers yep. per se, or other types of instrumentation out there. It really does run the gamut and it really depends on which I think, well, maybe another thing to point out is that pre-installation or pre-retrofit measurements can be just as important as post retrofits, not right. all about measuring exactly. after the case. So uh, even a simple lighting retrofit, you know, and they go two ways, either they rely on manufacturer's literature for Watts per fixture, that yep. sort of thing, which is a very acceptable way to do it. Other times they want to go in there and do some pre retrofit measurements as well. And I'll go off on a little tangent now about that sensitivity analysis. And it's really not all about, or it doesn't have to be all about the energy pro doing these sensitivity analysis, which I do, when Mark's talking about, I I agree that would happen prior to project implementation as far as sensitivity to rates. But when you come down to a guaranteed savings project, you're going to, you know, savings will be calculated and then they'll be hedged in essence. They're not going to guarantee every dollar of what they calculated. Right. But that still can be a very subjective, you know, and a lot of firms still look back to IPM VP, not for guidance, but they say, okay, if it's option A, our risk is this, right? B, mm-hmm. and as you get down into letters, the, your risk theoretically increases. But, you know, a sensitivity analysis is very helpful for measurement and verification and, and determining that risk before you enter into a project deal. But again, it doesn't happen all the time. And I would say it's pretty rare, I guess, that that level of sensitivity analysis is done. Well, that's but go to answer your question, I'm sorry. Well, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe I'm not. I was just going to say all the, uh, everything you described and more is. Yeah, like, okay. It, and I, I knew that going into the question. I just figured. Oh, why'd you ask it then? You could elaborate on it a oh, little bit. And I, I think you did. So well, <laughs> thank you. I, I'm, I'm going to elaborate even more. You know, the ESPC business or performance contracting business started back in the 80s. And I was fortunate to be involved with some really high level experts. You know, Jim Waltz from ERA was a, a great mentor early on in my career. But back in those days, back in the day, uh, much of the data was hand gathered, handwritten. So the boiler logs, the chiller logs were handwritten reports that were in a binder in the boiler room and you would have to go back and Excel was just barely on the scene and Lotus 123 was the spreadsheet of the day. So we are fortunate now to have extremely sophisticated tools, very reliable instrumentation, huge amounts of data, and the M&B process benefits from that all the way down the line because they're are no gaps that you know are full of subjective data or you know wet thumb numbers that you, you know you stick your thumb in the air and say I think it's yeah. about this much. So I, at this point in the development of the M and B and the IPMVP was a huge step forward. There's really not a good reason not to do sound M and V except for carelessness or or lack of attention to the process. You, you caught me. It caught us both surprised, uh, Mark, because I thought that statement had some more legs well, on it. I, well, so saying. what I'm saying is, uh, Clayton, uh, you know, I'm a car guy and you're a car guy, Two right? Different generations, right? Yeah. I'm used to if I have a chance to build a, a performance motor, it's going to be 
lots of cubic inches, you know, multiple collaboration. Yeah. Yep. And uh, uh, maybe it'll have an electronic distributor, but probably not. It'll probably have dual points on it. You, if it doesn't have an OBD2 reader on it, you're like, what the hell am I going to do with this, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yep. What do you get out of that OBD2 reader? More data than I can surely get with my hearing going south. And, right. you know, I mean, certainly you're going to get a lot more data and more performance probably per cubic inch than I am. But it's just what we grew up with, right? All I'm saying is that as I've watched the evolution of the industry, it has really, really come a long way. And, and at this point, it, it, especially with a good company, Unless there's an egregious oversight, there's not a reason for a failed performance contract. Oh, there's plenty of reasons, Mark. But uh, <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. I, I like what you're kind of taking me back to because uh, I do remember this too, right? You know, I mean, I still have books, you know, a lot of books on how to calculate savings for different complex technologies and processes and projects, and you know, you were using different things and simplifications but yeah i sometimes do decry with all these data that we have where 20 years ago if somebody was going to present you with the savings for a particular ecm you know there might be some shortcuts in simplification of the of the calculations right but it still followed a methodology where i think today we're going through a, a period maybe we're getting out of it where now that same calculation will be an Excel file and it's not quite as discernible when you open it up and there's 17 worksheets in there and you kind of have to trace out the numbers and sometimes you're left to make that connection yourself saying, okay, here's the bottom line number. Mm -hmm. Where did this come from? Okay, this comes over here. Where did this come from? So it's a, it's a double-edged sword and I think a lot of people are grabbing the wrong side of that sword sometimes. Wow, I agree with that, Nick. And I, I, I can tell you firsthand, we were on a project where, again, we were called in as, as subject matter experts to go through that discernation process. And, you know, when you traced it all back, there were a couple columns of numbers. One was assumptions and the others were givens. And I'm like, hmm, wonder what that means. <laughs> So, <laughs> I, you know, we had to have the, the guy on uh, uh, during during the deposition explain what he thought the difference between assumptions and givens were, and until finally, after enough, uh, you know, the the lawyer turned up the the flames underneath his uh, seat to the point where he said, "Well, they're basically the same," and this was the same guy who who also said that. Demand controlled ventilation is where you turn off the fans for a certain amount of time during periods of high energy demand. So all I'm saying is that you're right. A 15 page Excel spreadsheet can either be valid or invalid, again, based on the level of certainty and value of the of the measurements and the quality and responsibility of the M&B professional. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm not a big, you know, chapter and verse guy when it comes to IPM VP. And there's a lot of other people that know that that guideline document, everything in it a lot better than I do. But I do, you know, obviously there needs to be a standardization on how this industry is approached, whether it's professional guidelines and whatnot. But, you know, so all the ABCD stuff aside, the, the IPM VP does stress some some key principles that I think every M and V pro needs to be aware of, and they need to be carried into their projects. You know things like it should be complete, and this talks about your M and V plan and your M and V reporting too, which is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But you know, and be conservative in nature. And we're talking about dealing with the uncertainties and level of confidence. There needs to be consistency to how savings are compared across projects across buildings even different periods of time you know there's relevancy there's transparency so all these things are really good ideas to keep in mind when you're doing that and a lot of that comes down to the people that are being brought up into this area of practice and, and having me mentors that know it's not just about collecting a lot of data and overwhelming 
your customers or your team with how much information is there and it's so complicated that this must be right because it's it seldom is that's right if it's that but let me clarify it seldom is if it's that complicated that the author is the only one <laughs> that can understand it or is the only one that can lead somebody else through it to help them understand it i mean that should be an instant that's a giveaway yeah that yeah that's a red flag it should be clear and concise well, and that's what I think these protocols do help define mm-hmm. as far as guidelines where, and again, they don't cover everything. I mean, you know, the, the examples are covering pretty straightforward type of applications, but IPMVP is, is not, you know, they're talking about the, the common measures that you would see in a, in a project, the lighting motors, variable, variable load functions as well, but not necessarily combined heat and power centralized utility plants, microgrids, you know, and a lot of some of the other technologies we're seeing out there. Well, and it, it kind of, I think you made the same point in our energy podcast. It, it just came to me, you know, when we're talking about energy, ash rate, energy audit, level one, two, and three, it's not like you're going into it saying, I'm doing a uh, level one audit. And, you, you know, you're doing, you're, you're agreeing with the customer, however you're doing your your measurement and verification and then you're doing that right you're not necessarily outlining this is i'm doing you know option a b or c you're just saying this is what we're doing and we're all agreeing on it i'm assuming and then you're you're making your plan and following through with that plan well i don't know a little bit i mean most contracts do you know spell out you know what option what you know okay. a lot of people do recognize they okay. want you to either follow ipm vp or in the federal world, it's, you know, FEMPEM and V guidelines, <laughs> Federal Energy Management Program, but basically, see, so they want to see in, in every report and contract I'm a part of, there is a table someplace that says, hey, here's the different projects and here's what each M&V option is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you're right that it does need to be tied to some standard or guideline that people do understand, but it also comes down to the contract. The contract is a contract between two parties. And mm-hmm. I've seen plenty of contracts, hundreds that start off saying we will adhere to IPMVP principles, version mm-hmm. whatever. But then it goes through and has 17 pages of how we're going to MNV this project. And so the governing protocol is what's in the contract, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, as we talk more about liability and we talk about lawsuits and everything, you're right, and Mark has illustrated. If you say you're following these guidelines, then if you're pushed to it, then you need to back it up, and that you are, and just not putting that sentence in your contracts. Right. That's right. right. And actually, if you do put that sentence in your contract, it doesn't matter what else you put in there, because the de facto standard that you reference is the now incorporated by reference. Well, I think I almost said just the opposite. I know what you said. But- I, okay, so so let's let's clarify this. I don't know yeah. if you're listening, but so if I say I'm going to verify, uh, yeah, I'll challenge you on this. I think a little bit. Okay. So if we have a VFD application and it says we're going to be option B per IPMVP, and then I spell out what I'm doing, and I guess if there's no big, but so I'm listening. How do you go? Back when there's not an IP MVP, I guess, example for a project of the one you're dealing with, take the combined heat and power plant. I don't know. Well, well, no, I think now we're into contract language. And basically, whether you reference ASHRAE guideline 14, the FEP standard, or IP MVP in your contract, uh, that will become by incorporation part of the contract. So if you then further in your MNV plan, go through a methodology, which is not consistent with the referenced guideline, that will be a problem. I agree with that. Good example would be a, a variable load motor. And you said you're going to use IPMV standards. And then you've taken a different approach, which really did not go in and determine whether this truly was uh, a constant speed motor, let's say, if you're applying that type of methodology to it? Correct. Okay. Well, that's so a fair statement. Maybe this is a dumb question, but what if you 
you didn't. You said you're doing IP MVP, whatever, A, B, C, and you did it a different way than what you said in your contract, but your savings were in line with your your avoidance was in line with what the proposed avoidance was and everything is good. Like who's scrutinizing that? Who's saying that this is this is what the contract said and this is what you did it, and it'll probably things never don't get line any, up. It'll never get any scrutiny. There's no right. problem. Uh, right. The scrutiny. It's an honest answer right there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm just asking. I mean, like, because it's going to lead into my next question, but continue on. But the, the scrutiny happens, you know, okay, we don't, we, those of us with kids, kid comes home with a A on the test. Hey, good job, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't say, well, how'd you get that A? Let me, let me yeah. I, I want to, you know, maybe some of us do, you know, ask a few questions. Depends on the kid, I guess. Depends on the kid. <laughs> you know, if the A is an anomaly, well, maybe yeah. you say, how'd you get that A? But in yeah. general, good success doesn't require you to dive in and examine, yes, okay, okay. Here, here's why we're where we're at. Right. But when you have a, a bad performance, then you have to dive in and, uh, it's like a visit to the dentist. Uh, they find a soft spot. They start to drill, right? Yeah. So who, like, and we're talking about the contract. Who, who is the M and V entity? Who is the contract with the owner then? Oh, in the event of a dispute, it can go either way. Um, you know, when we get to any of the, the bad things, uh, arbitration, mediation, litigation, both parties will generally have M and V experts, you know, as their subject matter expert. And, in a typical ESPC contract, though, the M&V can be either by the ESPC contractor, typically, or by a contracted third party. Sometimes there's an audit. Uh, mm-hmm. We've audited M&V reports. So it, it can be any number of contractual mechanisms. Okay, okay. That makes sense. you agree, Nick? Yeah, I would just clarify that typically the the measurement and verification contractual language is incorporated right with the overall project agreement. So if, I don't know if you were asking if it's a separate contract and who is it with, but it's a part of you know the ongoing services as far as if a service agreement was packaged in with it and ongoing responsibilities from for the so site it's like as well. Part of the ESPC contract in general or can yeah be. absolutely and, yeah, and okay. espc projects are are can be rare in that you know the a lot of them require measurement and verification for the term of the project which can go you know i think the federal might go up to 25 years i haven't seen many more than 23 years but and i'm involved or have been involved in the recent years and projects that are in year 17 or so so there are some that are out there but and the value of M and V, in my opinion, does degrade over time. And if I was securing an M and V for a project in, in a facility of mine, yeah, I, I definitely look for a shortened term, more rigorous. I tell you exactly what I do. I put a lot of emphasis in the commissioning phase because yeah. that is hand, I mean, tied hand to, in hand with measurement and verification. And commissioning is a huge part of setting the project up on the right foot to be successful as it operates in the course of normal daily operations. So what, like what get, I guess get a little bit more into detail with commissioning and M and V and like hand in hand. And where does that handoff happen then once commissioning is done and M and V doesn't start, right? Because it's been going technically, I assume, but like talk about that relationship a little bit. Well, there are so many things that would happen in the course of not only your, your pre-functional testing and commissioning, but the functional testing that, one, if there's not that coordination between the M&V and the commissioning team, mm-hmm. then at best you're looking at duplication of effort, and at worst you're looking at things that are missed. So a lot of advantages of, of getting involved earlier, the M&V team and the commissioning team is there's a lot of things that can be done uh, on the contractor's side as you're going through. I mean, lighting is, is a very simple example where right. if you don't require your your lighting subcontractor typically to perform, let's say if, you, if you're going to do baseline measurements, well, somebody's got to do them before fixtures are ripped out and new ones are put in. Right. 
And it sounds simple, but that's been overlooked before. And it's a major issue, major mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so putting that, so having, or let's even say post-installation measurements and lighting, that should be something that's discussed with the lighting team and mm-hmm. whatever. I know people say, well, you can't commission lighting systems, but I dispute that. There's, there's, there's something to commission in lighting systems and the documentation right. that follows. But again, having that coordination between, I mean, commissioning is very much performance related and it is, you know, setting you up for the long-term performance is how I right. look at it. So yep. mm-hmm. I would say that the official handoff would probably be with the submittal of a commissioning report. You know, because then typically the commissioning team would be complete. Mm-hmm. They would move on to their project and M&V would continue with the culmination of everything that occurred, you know, in development with the baselining and then through installation with scope changes and then ultimately with the uh, commissioning deliverables. I, I would I would walk it back a step, Nick, and this has never happened, but in my happy place, it would happen. Uh, the the M&V team would see a copy of the commissioning plan before commissioning ever happened so that there would be a closer coordination to say, okay, here's what we, what, can we add this in or change this because it would make our lives easier. Oh, 100% agree. So yeah, that process, they get married up pretty quickly in, in Mark and Nick's world. <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't generally see that happening. No, no. Okay. You want it to happen, but it's we don't my, generally it's see it. It's in my happy place. It's not my here. Place. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, and that part can be frustrating because, you know, we do laugh about it. Like, yeah, we never see that. We wonder why, but it would just, uh, I don't know, every step that you have to, to make sure that the whole continuity of this project, right? It started with a set of problems. We're trying to get to a solution state. And that we're still, you know, focused on the prize. Right. You know, right. when I was in high school, I used to race these things called uh, mud and snow scrambles, you know, motorcycle races. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Everything. Typically happen winter, coldest days possible. It was great. I was never very good. But when you're going through the woods, you know, you're going through these ruts and everything. And some of them are, you know, you're up, you're up to your you know knees and these ruts and everything and straddling and, I'd always get stuck and I'd get in a particular rut and I'd follow it. And my note, you know, my eyes are looking down at the front of my tire. The next thing I know I'd hit, hit a tree or something. So uh, I was never very good, but then I got some advice one day and it was just look out as far ahead as you can. Right. Right. And don't worry about that rut right in front of you. And it was really amazing because then I could just go a lot faster and then like hit the next tree. So well, a lot of that can be, like these projects where you need to be looking, you know, down the road and in the case of M and V, ultimately you're going to be putting together a professional opinion at the end of the year, or it could be at the end of the quarter, verifying that these savings did accrue or did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that said, you still have to be aware of the steps along the process to get there, but right, right. you definitely do need to keep the end in mind. And really all these disciplines do. Uh, just to follow on what Nick's with what Nick said, Nick, that is truly the voice of experience speaking, because and as Clayton will probably attest to it, we have been on jobs before with contractors, and I call them the whiners because everything is why do we need to do that? Well, mm-hmm. because I have a vision in my mind as to where we need to be when this is all said and done, and here are the steps that will take place, whether the data goes into an energy dashboard, an M and B report. So it must be right. It has to be right. It can't be good enough, mostly kind of sort of acceptable. And basically looking at the end game is the, I mean, that's the M&V guy. He's the end game. So if the commissioning agents are responsible to satisfy the owner and have a project in place that the M can be turned over to the M&V guys for them to perform their function, then that's what we need to look at. You know, it kills me because you, you talk, and now I'm thinking back to, I listened to uh, one of your earlier BMS podcasts, which is great, but you guys talked about like the incumbency effect, right? Yeah. Of these major control vendors. And 
getting into buildings and they knew they were in there for a long time because it took a lot to then replace all of their proprietary equipment, right? And get in there. And especially with performance contracts, it amazes me that, you know, an ESCO will go in there, reach an agreement with a customer for 20 years, 20 years plus, and they don't go out the first chance they get and just make sure they nail that M&V report. Because there's usually a post-installation. With, with the federal projects, there always is a post-installation M&V project. So this is before you even get into year one. And this, and this relies heavily on the commissioning outputs. And it's pretty much, hey, now that you know everything and you've taken some measurements, where do you think you're actually going to be in year one? Are you going to save more or less than you thought? If it's less, then how are you going to recover from this? So it's that part is is very important when it comes to uh, you know planning the overall approach here. But you have these contract terms. You're taking a customer off the street, right, for 20 years, 15 years sometimes, and they're not you know blowing their socks off with the professionalism of an M and V report from year one and. That's when you that's when you really secure that customer relationship too. I mean, it is the end point of, hey, here's what we started talking to you about three years ago when we started, you know, coming into your facilities and talking about a big energy project. And a lot of times it's just uh I don't know, seen as more of just checking the box on something. Well, and so to along those lines, Nick, in the study of uh of business and actually uh mentoring and all that the number one reason that companies get displaced employees get displaced is because their customer isn't satisfied so if you have the opportunity to demonstrate hey and we can quantify here's what we promised we're we're delivering or we're over delivering and cement that there's no reason in the world not to do that you need to do it and I would say it's even more important with, well, it's always important, but, you know, there's always companies that have more locations, right, around the country. There's with with federal installations, these are big places, and, and you can do a $30 million project, uh, performance contract one year, and two years later, you could be looking at phase two for $40 million because you're looking at other stuff that's going on in their military base or, you know, in their right. campus. So right. in, in multiple phases are not uncommon with federal ESPC, but the biggest shame is when you have somebody that's been doing a couple of phases and then, well, they, you know, they want to use somebody else necessarily. They don't want to do another project because, you know, they're not happy with what they've been delivered, not the construction of the project, but, you know, the follow-up and the verification that right. the performance, you know, their comfort level that we really got these savings that we, we thought we would. Yep. I agree. Well, and I think with that, <laughs> you guys covered a lot about M and V. Um, I think it was a really insightful episode. The, like I said, M and V was something I wasn't the most familiar with. So I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners did too. Um, and with that being said, I, I think we can wrap this episode up here. Uh, I think we'll we'll definitely have some more conversation in this podcast series about M&V, talk about energy dashboarding compared to M&V, and as Nick mentioned, um, third-party M&V. But we'll wrap it up here for today. Hopefully you guys learned a lot from this episode. Again, just give you a good understanding of the M&V process, what it's all about, a little bit about how it works. Obviously, it's all very situationally dependent, but that was the MMV episode. So thanks a lot for tuning in. Our next episode, we'll be discussing energy dashboarding and data analytics. So tune in for that. And for more information on us, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us or www.appliedfacilityscience.com. Like us on Facebook. We got a Facebook and a LinkedIn as well. So just a lot of great t- content on those pages. So tune into there as well. Thanks a lot. Have a great day, guys.